0: For you this morning. And you're saying, of course you do, right? You're preaching God's word. The revelation is every HGTV show is exactly the same. (laughs) Now, if you're not familiar, HGTV stands for Home and Garden Television. And ironically, there are no shows about gardens, Uh, they're all about houses. And they're all the same. Now, they may take place in different parts of the country, but they're the same. In each show, There's a designer and some kind of builder. And the designer and the builder spend about 50 minutes of the show laying the groundwork for the last 10 minutes of the show. And this is, of course, the best part, right? The big reveal. This is where the people who are having their house renovated or flipped close their eyes, they come into the house, they open their eyes, and they see how truly awesome the house is. Well, this morning uh, we're continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as I was preparing, I just couldn't help but think that our passage this morning, Galatians 3.26 through 4.7, is a bit like that HGTV program. Over the last three weeks, Kwathi and John have laid the groundwork, the foundation of Paul's argument. And this morning, I get to take you into the house, and you get to see what it looks like. We ended last week in Galatians 3.25, and it says, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In his commentary on Galatians, John Stott says that verse 25 underlines that what we are is quite different from what we were. So what are we? what does the true gospel that gives freedom say we are? Well, we're going to see three things this morning about the gospel. First, the gospel gives us a common identity. Second, the gospel tells our common story. And third, the gospel puts us in a common family. So common identity First, the true gospel gives us a common identity. And we see this in chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Now, the first thing we see when we step into this newly renovated home is that it's filled with Jesus. Paul begins in verse 26, one of his most repeated phrases, so in Christ Jesus. Having moved from where the Galatians were, Paul now flips to what they are. The Galatians are in Christ Jesus. What does he mean? Well, in verse 27, he says that to be in Christ Jesus means that they are baptized into Christ. Now here, Paul is not referring to water baptism, the practice that we do and that all gospel-believing churches do. No, he's talking about baptism in the theological sense, meaning he's talking about what happens to a person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. That person is baptized. The person is united with Christ. But being in Christ also means a person is clothed with Christ. Now it's likely here that Paul was thinking of the Roman ceremony in which the toga of an adult was placed on a young man to declare that the young man had come of age. And this continues Paul's thought from verses 23 through 25 to now, about the law being our guardian. It was, but now in Christ, through faith, the Galatians have come of age, and they wear Christ. Finally, we see in verse 29 that to be in Christ means that the Galatians belong to Christ. The Galatians are Christ's, And he is theirs. Through faith in Christ, he now holds them with total security. But Paul doesn't stop there. When it comes to our common identity, having highlighted and underlined Christ, 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 Paul now uses three you are statements to explain the common identity the gospel gives us. First we see in verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Here Paul uses the word children to contrast our changed relationship between the guardian and what we are now. We were under a guardian and that guardian controlled us. That guardian obligated us. He enslaved us but now through faith we're children." Now in chapter 3, verse 7, he'd said that those who have faith are children of Abraham, but here he makes it even better. Those that have faith in Christ are most fundamentally children of God. Now the Bible teaches that all people are created by God. And in that sense, every person is his offspring, and in fact, That's the words that Paul uses to the crowd in Athens as he preaches the gospel to them in Acts 17. The Bible, however, does not teach that all people are God's children. The exact opposite, actually. Only those who come to him by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, are his children. Recall the opening of John's gospel, John 1, 12-13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God, meaning born again by God. Regenerated, made new by God. And this gives us the right to be called his children. And that is what we are, and that's what the gospel says we are. Now, this idea I don't think really needs much illustration at all. I can think of no warmer, no more loving picture of the changed relationship the gospel gives us and brings us into than to be called God's child. Just think of your own children. Or if you don't have children, think of children you know, children in your family, children in our church. How much do you love them? How much do you give to them? How much do you long for their good? And it doesn't change as they get older, does it? How much more so God with us? Now when we talk about being God's children and we draw on images of our own families, We always have to pause to recognize that the image of being a child doesn't comfort or resonate with everyone. Some of you grew up in families where being someone's child, in fact, gave you no security whatsoever. So if this is you, I want to reassure you this morning. Though your mother and father forsake you, the Lord will receive you. He is not like anyone else in your past. There is no more loving, or secure place in the universe than to be a child of God. Well, Paul's second great you are statement is found in verse 28. He says, you are all one in Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile. He says, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it may not sound like it today, uh, but this is a radical statement especially coming from Paul who's in his former life we always have to remember his former life he remembers it he zealously it was so zealously and so narrowly exclusively focused on Jews being Jewish and you hear this in Jesus interaction that we read in our scripture reading. The thing is, is that Paul's former view, Jews and Jews alone is the current view of the false teachers in Galatia. By insisting that you needed to be circumcised to be saved, they were reframing the gospel into something that only Jews do. And by insisting on circumcision, which by the way only Jewish men did, the false teachers essentially were preaching. There is Jew and Gentile, there is slave and free, there is male and female, but Paul would have none of this because that is not the true gospel. The true gospel is one faith that comes through one savior, one death, one resurrection. It comes through one redeemer. It is one gospel that comes one way through faith. And this means it's accessible to everybody. It's open for everybody. One Bible commentator put it this way. While this verse has been used and abused in an attempt to develop a Christian ethic, we cannot afford to ignore its great significance for the subject at hand. And especially in our day, the commentator says, When we have become very conscious of the destructive power of prejudice, we should both rejoice in a gospel that countenances no spiritual preferences and learn to conduct ourselves in a way that sets that truth before a confused world. And I I love that commentary and quote The gospel countenances. No spiritual preferences. And what he means is in Christ, there are no component pieces. All right, there are no VIPs. Uh, there's no one with special status, no one above and no one underneath. There's no one who gets one gospel and someone who gets a lesser gospel. One person doesn't come to Christ in one way and another in another way. Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years, Or for 40 seconds, the gospel is the same. All have sinned, and absolutely everyone can be saved. So let's make this point as clearly as we can. I try to encourage you to see yourself as God's child, regardless of your family. The Lord, in Christ, through faith, will receive you. The Lord will receive you if you're Jewish. He will receive you if you're a Gentile. He will receive you if you're white. He will receive you if you're black. He will receive you if you're an American. He will receive you if you are from South Sudan. He will receive you if you're rich. He will receive you if you're poor. And the Lord will receive you if you are a man. And the Lord will receive you if you are a woman. Through faith in Christ The Lord will receive you, period. Now, before we move on, we have to stop and put just a little, one of those little sticky notes on verse 28. And this sticky note is simply a reminder that we cannot use this verse to go farther than Paul himself goes. Now, Paul is not saying that there aren't any distinctions between people, such as ethnic differences or distinctions in vocation or calling. And he's not saying there are no differences between men and women. In fact, he will speak quite clearly on this topic in other letters, especially as it relates to marriage, parenting, and roles and responsibilities in the church. But that is not his point here. His point here is much more simple. It isn't that there are no distinctions, it's that the distinctions don't matter. They don't matter when it comes to how we're saved or who we are in Christ well we see the final you are statement in verse 29 if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise and again what Paul is saying is the culmination of the argument he's been making through all of chapter three so we won't spend a lot of time on this this morning but let me summarize if you belong to Christ the promise made to Abraham is a promise made to you his story is your story his blessing is your blessing His inheritance is your inheritance. Simply put, you're in Abraham's family, not by ethnicity, not by circumcision, but by the promise of a Savior who would come and reconcile you to God. So this is the gospel, and it tells us our common identity. But the gospel also tells our common story. Uh, So having started with the big reveal... Paul now, he kind of wants us to step out of the house for just a second and kind of take a look down the street and remind us exactly how we got to this place. So in chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us that he's now going to summarize a point that he's been trying to make through all of chapter 3. Having said that the law was our guardian, he now is going to complete the illustration using an illustration that was so common the Galatians would all understand it. And it revolves around this idea of an heir. So we know what an heir is, right? An heir is someone who inherits something from another person, and that person makes a promise to them, and the heir receives that promise. But under Roman law, we always have to remember the cultural context of the Bible. Under Roman law, and this is what Paul was drawing on, A person didn't become an heir at death, the person became an heir at birth. So a child born into a family was already considered an heir, meaning he he owned the whole estate just the same way as the father owned it. And one day it would all be his, but not yet, because the heir is under age. And that's the word Paul uses in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 4. Now, this word underage describes a very young child, uh, characterized by weakness or helplessness, and such a child couldn't inherit the state, right? That child instead had to be under the care of guardians and trustees, and those guardians and trustees would rule over the child until he came of age, and this would be a time chosen by his father. So in this way, Paul is saying that a child is no different than the slave, and that makes sense, right? A slave is subject to someone, and so is this young child, even though the young child owns the whole estate. And so in that sense, the heir and the slave are the same, and that's Paul's point, which he uses then as a comparison for us in verse 3. He says, so also we were underage in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And so here he says, like that child heir, we too were once underage age in slavery under what he calls the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now this term, elemental spiritual forces, in Greek meant essentially things placed side by side in a row, kind of like the ABCs. And then it came to mean fundamental principles or basic elements of different kinds. And Paul's going to use this same word in chapter 4 verse 9 when he refers to forces, describing them as weak and miserable. Now, the context here suggests that Paul is referring to religion, elemental forms of religion, whether those of Jews or those of Gentiles. Both groups had sacrifices, both groups had rituals, such as circumcision, and they both had rites of kind of getting yourself cleaned up so that you could approach a holy God. And essentially, these principles taught a person a way to be saved, They said, by lining these things up, you are saved. By doing these things, you are saved. But the reality is the elemental spiritual forces cannot save a person. Instead, they enslave a person. They hold a person in bondage. And that bondage is something the person can never get out of. And of course, in his perfect way of saying things, John Stott describes these elemental spiritual forces as a cul-de-sac. Now I live on a cul-de-sac, and if you drive down my road in a car, a vehicle, you will not get out. You're just gonna turn around and come right back to where you started. Now you can try it again, but the same thing's gonna happen again. You're gonna go down in a circle and you're come right back to where you started. And that's what religion does. It makes promises to take you somewhere, but in the end there's no there, there's no exit. You're just gonna keep going around and around and around. And it's not just religion that does this. These elemental spiritual forces can take the form of ideas as well. They can take the form of philosophies. They can take the form of political movements. Now, these things may use different words, but they all try to do the same thing. They tell you the way to be free. They tell you how to have liberty, but it's liberty you'll never find. Instead, you'll find yourself deeper and deeper and deeper in bondage. So is there anything that can break us free? Yes. In verse 4, Paul uses one of the best words in the Bible, but. Though this was our situation, he says, your situation, mine and yours, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Now, you could preach an entire sermon on Galatians 4.4, and John will do that on Christmas Eve. (laughs) But for now, let's just look at a few important things. It's a perfect Christmas verse, actually. First, we see that it's God who takes the initiative to break us free. In verse 4, Paul says, When the time set had fully come, God sent. So we didn't do this. We didn't even play a role in it. God did it on his timing, his tempo. And what he did is he sent. Who did he send? He sent his son meaning the one sent was fully God. And that son, while being fully God, he says, was also born of a woman, which is true of everyone in this room. Just like Jesus, he was born of woman. So at the same time, while being fully God, he's fully human. And finally, this son, born of woman, was also born under the law, meaning he was born under the requirements of the law And John said it great a couple weeks ago, it's a law that demands personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He obeyed every single part of it. But he didn't just come to obey the law as amazing as that is. No, Paul says in verse 5, he came for a specific purpose, and his purpose, being under the law, was to go in and get the people who are under the law. In other words, he came to buy back people for God, and that's what redeemed means. His mission was to take the curse we deserved, to pay the ransom we could not pay, and he did this by laying down his life for us. Nobody took it. He laid it down for us. And this is our common story, held in bondage by elemental spiritual principles, whatever they were set free by Jesus. This is the story of everyone who claims the name of Christ and follows him. Now, in the Broadway musical, uh, it's very popular, especially with young adults these days, Dear Evan Hansen, the main character is a teenage boy whose father left the family when he was young. And Evan has deep anxiety and deep loneliness, uh, which is something our teenagers do experience still now. And he feels totally alone and adrift in the world. And toward the beginning of the musical, he sings a song called Waving at the Window. And this sets up the emotional arc of the entire story. And it goes like this. I'm on the outside, always looking in. Will I ever be more than I've always been? Because I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass. I'm waving through a window. I try to speak, but nobody can hear. So I wait around for an answer to appear. While I'm watch, watch, watching people pass, I'm waving through a window. Can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? And the gospel answers all of this. It says, you know what, I was exactly there too. I might have been living a life far from God. I might have been trying to incorporate works or religious principles or other religions in my life. I might have been trying to get back to God by just being a good and righteous person. But no matter what, either way, I was lost. I was tapping on the glass. But there is someone who hears you, and his name is Jesus, and he's not just waving back. He's smashing through the glass to break it free to find you, and only he can make you truly free, and if the sun sets you free, oh man, you are free indeed. And so the gospel tells our common story. Finally, the gospel puts us in a common family. And in these final verses, Paul's going to take us back into the renovated house, and now we're going to get the grand tour. God sent his son, he said, to redeem those under the law, he said. But to what end? He says in verse 5, it was so that we might receive adoption to sonship, or as it's sometimes translated, we might receive the full rights as sons. Now again, again, Adoption is a term we're familiar with, but was a little different in Roman culture. In the Roman legal system, the most significant factor of adoption was the authority of the father, the authority of the father. And in an adoption, if the father adopted you, that person's old relationships were severed, old debts and obligations were canceled, and the person was placed under the authority of the father in a new family. And what does Paul say we're adopted to or as? We're adopted as sons. Now some of you may object and say, well, he means sons and daughters. No, he means sons. Sons in that culture, as in true of many cultures today, occupied special privileges and a special status in the family. I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. I'm saying that this is the way it was. So for Paul to say, that we've been adopted as sons means that we've been brought into the most special and treasured place in that family. Question and answer 34 of the Westminster Short of Catechism asks the question, What is adoption? Answer: Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we're received into the number and have the right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So what privileges do we get? Well, because you are his sons, he says, again, by adoption, we get the spirit of his son in our hearts. And it's a spirit who Paul says calls out, Abba, Father. Now, if you're like me, you've probably heard for as long as you can remember in the church that when we use the word Abba here, that word actually means daddy or papa. And some people even go as far as to say it's really a baby's word. It's like a first word a toddler would use. And don't get me wrong, that preaches, right? That's great. (laughs) Uh, But a lot of people don't agree with that statement, and and I also don't agree with that statement. And I don't think the Bible really supports that. And and the main reason is because if Paul had wanted to convey the idea of a child or a baby's word, he would have used that word in the Greek but he didn't use that word. He chose a different word. But I want to reassure you with the words of one commentator, you don't need Abba to mean daddy for the words to be marvelous on our lips. So what does Abba mean? Well, the first thing we see is that Paul kept that Aramaic word Abba alongside the Greek word Hopater, which is here translated as father. So Why keep the Aramaic word at all? Okay, well, Aramaic was the native language of the Jews from the time of their exile from Babylon onward. And I think the reason Paul keeps that Aramaic word here, Abba, as he does in Romans 8.15 is simple. It's because it's what Jesus said. They heard him say it. We see this in Mark chapter 14, verses 36 to 37. The scene is the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And Mark says, going a little farther, he, meaning Jesus, fell to the ground and prayed, if possible, that the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So, like other places in the Gospels, where the gospel writer kept the Aramaic word of Jesus, Mark kept it, and Paul uses it because they heard Jesus say it. The eyewitnesses of Mark told him that's what Jesus said, and that's why Paul uses it. So what can we learn from the fact that Jesus addressed God in this way? Well, I think the word is probably best paraphrased as dear father, And it's a double address, father, father. And it was used in Jesus' day as a way that family members would address the head of a household. Now, it's not a child's term, but we can safely say it was a domestic term. It was used in the context of family. It was warm, and it was personal, and it was familiar. English actually doesn't doesn't have kind of a familiar thing to it that a lot of languages have. But this is a familiar way. And here's kind of the point. Slaves and servants of the house did not have the privilege to talk to the head of household like that. right? They had to address the head as a master or as a lord. But a son could address him as a father and in fact call him dear father. So what's Paul's point? Well, I can't say it any better than one commentator said. He said Paul wants us to grasp The dramatic change of relationship that comes with being a Christian. We believers no longer address God as we would a servant or a slave. A servant or slave would address God. We don't talk to God like that anymore. Instead, this commentator says we come to him, we come to the Lord, in full assurance that we're family. We're family. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to sing an awesome hymn in Christ alone. And we'll sing of the glorious truth of Jesus' death on the cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, we sing the wrath of God was satisfied. For on him, every sin was laid. And that is a glorious truth. And there is no gospel without it. But there is also no gospel without this truth. Through Christ's death, you have been adopted. By the authority of the Father. As a son, you are now welcome, you are now loved, and you're now family. You're family. I think the application here is pretty straightforward. At its most basic level, how would you describe your relationship with God? How do you see him? Are you his slave? Or are you his son? Do you relate to God on the basis of the rules you've kept, like a slave does? Do you live in fear, like a slave? Do you say the word Father with your lips, but inside God seems distant and harsh? And if totally honest, you've got to say, he's really not for my good. Do you live in constant anxiety that you never measure up? And in the end, you're kind of crossing your fingers, hoping in some way he accepts you. That's the way false gospels work. They make you slaves. But the true gospel puts you in a common family where you can talk to him directly as a father and as a son talks to a father. Simply put, the true gospel brings you home. I'll be home for Christmas. I'm home with Christ. I'm home with Christ. So there it is. Uh, It's the culmination of Paul's argument in chapter three. It's the big reveal we've been waiting for, and it's awesome, it's awesome. The gospel gives us a common status in Christ where his children, we're all one, and we are part of an awesome story that's been going on way before us and is gonna continue. And the gospel tells us our common story. Every Christian, once, we once were in a spot where we lined things up and we tried to obey those things, but we were trapped. And God sent his son to buy us back. And finally, the gospel puts us in a common family where the spirit of Christ brings us into a loving, a loving relationship with a father we can totally trust. Totally trust. But I want to end this morning where Paul ends in verse 7. And it's with this word heir. The spirit makes us a son, And since we're a son, Paul said, God has made you also an heir. Now, we said before again that an heir is someone that inherits something. So it begs the question, what exactly are we going to inherit if we're heirs? Well, in chapter 3, verse 29, Paul says that we are heirs according to the promise. And that promise was a promise made to Abraham. So what did God promise to Abraham that is also promised to us? Romans 5.13 says that the promise made to Abraham was that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Paul says the same thing in a slightly different way in Galatians 5.21, where he warns that people who live to satisfy themselves will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is it that we inherit? We inherit the world. We inherit the kingdom of God. Or as Jesus said, we inherit eternal life. And it's going to be a physical, bodily resurrection, a new heavens and a new earth where God will live with his people and we'll live with him. It's a place that we inherit where absolutely every tear is gonna be wiped away, where there'll be no more death, no mourning, no crying, and no pain, where the old order of things has passed away, passed away, and everything is new. And this is the great promise. Of the gospel. Our inheritance is not just a beautifully renovated house. Our inheritance is a brand new city, a brand new city. And in Revelation 21 7, the one who sits on the throne says this Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their, my, their God, and they will be my children. Wow, this is the hope to which we are called. This is what the gospel gives us. This is our inheritance. So let's end here smack dab in the middle of the book and let's review. We get eternal life because we're heirs, we're heirs because we're sons. We're sons because we have the spirit of his son in us and we have the spirit of his son in us. The son who was clearly portrayed as crucified. We have his spirit because we believed what we heard. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel and let's never Ever leave it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you. Thank you for this word. What reassurance. Though the, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is your world. And behold, you are going to make all things new and you've started it already. The first fruits, the kingdom. The kingdom started, the kingdom begun. Thank you that we can call you our dear Father, that we can pray to you, cry out to you as Jesus did. Thank you that you're sovereign, you hear us, and that your will for us is good, pleasing, and perfect. Thank you for this gospel. May it be forever honed and looked at and loved and cherished and protected. May it be preached faithfully here and everywhere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.